substituting job training for education. We're really boxing kids into you know specific path when they're 13, 14 years old. Hello and welcome to episode 38 of Rural Matters, the leading podcast on rural education, health and business in the United States. I'm your host, Michelle Rathman, and I'm really excited to have you as a listener of the program. Now, when I'm not hosting Rural Matters, you'll find me working with rural health organizations and hospitals and speaking around the country on the topics of rural health sustainability, patient and community stakeholder collaboration and engagement, and of course, rural health workforce development, which is a really big issue today. Now, as a reminder, you can find Rural Matters on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember that we encourage you to subscribe and receive new episodes automatically. And of course, we always welcome your feedback. So if you've got ideas for an upcoming podcast or a question about an episode, or if you just want to chat with us, please do send us an email at ruralmatterspodcast at gmail.com. And of course, we do hope that you'll follow and engage with us on Twitter. You could do that at Rural Matters Pod or with me personally at MRB Impact. Now, again, we're excited to have you tune in, and I'm really looking forward to today's discussion because, of course, on this program, we have a lot of conversations with rural education stakeholders, but today we have Mr. Jason Stravone. Jason is the author of Corporatizing Rural Education. Now, Jason has worked with several rural K-12 through school districts in New England and in various capacities. And before starting in education, he helped develop geographic information systems in West Virginia and northern Wisconsin. Jason attended Lock Haven University for his undergraduate studies, and he recently received his PhD from UMass Dartmouth. So good morning, Jason, and welcome to Rural Matters. Uh, good morning. Thank you for having me. Morning. So back in th- those uh, of our regular listeners, they know that prior to um, focusing my career on rural health care in particular, I used to represent authors. And so that we won't go back that far. So um, it's, it's great to have an author on the program. And the, the title of your book is Intriguing, Corporatizing Rural Education. So let's just start by what motivated you to put such a uh, it's a, a pretty involved book. What motivated you to write this and put this information out there for public consumption? So this book, it was it came from my PhD dissertation while I was at UMass Dartmouth. Um, in the program, we were studying and discussing quite a bit about um, the corporate influence on public education, such as the the growth of private charter schools, vouchers, and just generally the ways that you know public education was becoming less public and being um, put into private hands. Um, and kind of all this really fell under the broader question of, you know, what are the larger political and economic forces shaping education? And so in the, the program, we had, we looked a lot about, you know, the economic capitalist influence on schools, basically. Um, one of the big drivers of education policy is making things economically efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, and this kind of led to two broad effects. There's first that kind of an implicit and I would also say kind of unquestioned belief that the purpose of school is to prepare kids for a job. And I'm not saying that there's not a place for this kind of work education in schools, but um, as I go into in the book, when education is seen only as a vehicle for work, we're really selling ourselves short in as a, a democratic society and it because it really goes a long way in weakening the public sector. Mm-hmm. And the second effect was kind of this idea that schools need to operate with some kind of economic efficiency. And for rural schools particularly, this is generally meant consolidation where you know the small 
uh, schools are closed down because it's seen as too costly to to have a small school with a, and it's just easier to um, take as bunch of kids into a consolidated regional school um, that draws on from a number of surrounding communities. Mm-hmm. When this comes to rural education, much of the research that we were looking at was really urban-based, specifically um, when it comes to privatization attempts as a way to um, kind of deal with poverty. Um, so the impetus for opening a charter school or implementing a voucher system is that the public school is a failure. And as someone who has lived and worked in rural areas with rural schools, um, there's a definite overlap in the way public schools are being shaped as not good enough. And um, I wanted to really look at like what, with so much going on in urban, like I, the rural kind of gets overlooked in that aspect. So um, that became my dissertation, which was not a specific research project, um, but I wanted to take kind of a broad view or a review of the um, the way corporate private power has taken over schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so there may not have been a specific goal when I was starting out, but I really wanted to kind of get into almost an introduction of, you know, this um, private influence on rural education. So like if you're a rural educator and you want to know more about, you know, the social cultural theories that are influencing schools, um, this would be a good place. And also on the other hand, if you're an urban suburban educator, um, trying to see how these um, different aspects are playing out in rural schools, this would be the place. So we're going to go into kind of four main topics. But I'll just put out there for you, you know, as I said, in this program, I've had the privilege um, to interview quite a few rural educators, rural education stakeholders, not all of them educators. And I know that in many parts of the country uh, where rural is concerned, there is a great deal of passion and um, investment in bringing STEM education into rural schools. And I spoke with one um, gentleman in particular who was the head of a large um, co- organ company in rural Oklahoma and um, thought, thought it was really difficult, uh, found it to be very difficult to recruit top talent because the schools, in terms of just their public records, were falling behind and, and those uh, individuals who he was working to recruit were concerned about whether or not their children would receive um, the highest education they possibly could, the highest quality, I should say. And so um, he championed a uh, rural charter school. And one of the things that drove him to do that, and that's why I want to talk to you about privatization of public schools in general, is because a superintendent of the public school system said to him, you know, we have two, our expectations of rural students are just too high. And so therefore, that was kind of the excuse for, you know, not making sure that they were receiving advanced education. So let's talk about these four topics. And we'll start with the privatization of public schools in general. So in your, in your book and in, in, in your research, um, just give us in a nutshell kind of your sense of you know, where it is, where it's going, and why we are at the place that we're at where there is seemingly such a, you know, a large um, portion of this space that really sees the benefit in, in private charter schools, in particular how that affects rural communities. Yeah, um, so much of the um, educational reform movement is really based on this kind of an economic ideology where um, I know a number of uh, rural scholars have written about um, and actually all, in all of our education, the way that kind of economics is driving education. And this idea that school should run like a business has become 
uh, very prevalent. And that's where we get, you know, the foundations of our, our high stakes testing, the new teacher evaluation system, strict accountability, and uh, um, school choice. And school choice becomes kind of a misleading term as, you know, the, the public school is generally not one of the choices being championed. Right. Um, so anyway, these, kind of, these market reform strategies um, that call for charters or vouchers are kind of based in the idea that competition will create better schools. And um, my issue, issues with that, one is the idea that how are we determining what is a better school? Like, is it just based on the test scores? Also, uh, if there is a competition, then, you know, someone's going to lose. Like if you close, I mean, the idea that, you know, close down the public school, send everyone to a private or a public charter doesn't necessarily work. I mean, not every kid is going to be able to go to that school. So we have to really get beyond this individual competition and into thinking what is best for, you know, the public at large. And because, because I think what you're saying is by choice, you mean if you have the means. Yes. And I mean, not everyone has the choice and um, it puts kind of the impetus on like, I mean, obviously if you have a child in school, you want the best for them. Mm-hmm. And but if you're putting parents and kids in competition, like then it takes away from this idea. Okay, what can we do to improve the public, improve you know society in general? And I believe the way to do that would be to a strengthening of the public sector. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so you know the the next point that you talk about is the role of venture philanthropy, and I'm really interested in that and how it relates to specific, specifically to rural schools. So why don't you talk about what your definition is of venture philanthropy and how it relates specifically to rural schools. This idea kind of actually came from um, my doctoral advisor who had written a book called uh, The Gift of Education um, about the way that um, just the role of corporate philanthropy in education in general. Uh, As I I think I I mentioned a little that privatization is mostly focused in cities. I mean, New York and Chicago have huge charter versus public battles right now. And New Orleans went completely charter after Hurricane Katrina. Mm. Um, Rural schools have generally been overlooked because um, a lot of these, there's groups, they want to return on their investment and there's not much money to be made in rural schools. There's not enough students, not enough places. Um, Although as I was starting the research, there was a a group out of Idaho that had released a a series of research documents that were really pushing uh, rural privatization efforts. And uh, the the funders, people behind it, it was groups like the Fordham Institute, Bellwether Education, the Gates Foundation, Teach for America. And these are all groups that have advocated, you know, the school choice charter schools in the past. Um, so by actually by laying out their recommendations, they made my work a little easier because I just kind of was able to go in and see the ways that this could actually hurt rural schools, what they were putting in there. Um, one of the things they suggested was, you know, finding ways to, to lift the barriers to charters, like removing caps or other regulations, um, and also to um, put policies in place that would incentivize opening charter schools outside of a city, like in a rural area. Um, and then also... Um, talks about finding new ways to get teachers either through alternative licensing or teach for America, which um, I mean, obviously you talk a lot about, I mean, you found just listening to your podcast, a lot of educators coming on saying, you know, it's tough to find teachers. And 
I agree that it is a problem, but I don't, though I think the way to do that is really to try to build within rural communities rather than necessarily trying to attract from the outside. And the way I think you can do that is by strengthening rural communities. Mm-hmm. Um, well, because we, we do know that, um, in, I, in full disclosure, I am the mother of a, uh, of a daughter who is a charter school <laughs> teacher in inner city Indianapolis, and then another daughter-in-law who was a charter school teacher. Um, and they do talk about, I mean, the, their frustrations with, you know, just resources and, and truly the competition from within because they weren't chasing scores as much as they were chasing money. Um, because they were wait, you know, they, of course, um, you know, every year they're waiting to see if their charter funds um, uh, were coming back. But I'm really interested in the inadequately trained teaching staff. So what happens? Because in your experience, in your research, did you find that uh, just in terms of the qualifications for um, uh, recruiting teachers were a, a bit uh, on the lack side compared to a teacher that was applying for a job in a public sector school? Um. I mean, not necessarily what it really when but when you have groups that are you know advocating for alternative license and a teach for America, like um, I mean you could I mean, I don't want to make it seem like you know that traditional teacher licensing education program is the way to go. Mm-hmm. but when something with some of these alternative programs, it's like maybe you take two weeks, a month of courses, and then you're put into a high need school in front of kids who they need the qualified teachers the most and they're the ones getting the like, well, let's get as many bodies in the classroom as we can. And mm-hmm. uh, for the, m- most of those teachers don't stay in the role long term. So you're also like, okay, you're, it's a bandaid really. Like you're putting, like okay, you have a teacher, you got them in quickly, but you know, how long are they staying and are they really committed to the community? So we're going to take a quick break in just a moment and we come back. I, I think actually it would be good for us to just, kind of reset and let's talk about the purpose of education. You talked about that just at the very top of the program and maybe how we adults have maybe lost sight of what that is and training kids to be a part of the workforce versus providing them with an experience to learn. So I'd like for you to touch on that. I'm very curious about that topic with grandchildren now um, just starting school. So when we come back, we'll talk about that. But first, let me just take a brief break to acknowledge our sponsors for today's episode. Alliance for Healthy Kansas is a growing statewide coalition promoting policies aimed at assuring everyone has an opportunity to attain their highest level of health. Alliance membership includes business leaders, doctors and hospitals, social service and safety net organizations, faith communities, chambers of commerce, advocates for health care consumers, and many others. The first policy goal is to expand canned care, the Kansas Medicaid program to cover more Kansans. Expanding CanCare would bring hundreds of millions of federal tax dollars back home to Kansas, ensure more than 150,000 Kansans cover unpaid health care costs that are hurting hospitals, create thousands of jobs, and help stimulate the state's economy. The Alliance is pursuing this policy goal with an integrated approach that includes community engagement, communications, and lobbying strategies. Now, we're also um, very thankful that this episode is being sponsored by the Butler County Educational Service Center. This is a visionary, premier, inclusive organization that serves as a central resource for schools, government agencies, families, and children in Butler County, Ohio. For more than 100 years, Butler County has provided educational programs and services, professional development, and multifaceted family services spanning from prenatal through high school. Recently, the International Society 
Technology and Education named Butler County ESC, one of the 10 nationwide providers of its new educator credentialing program. BCESC also piloted a mobile app to make professional development more accessible for teachers on the go, which now supports more than 200 ed educators in Graham's uh, Graham local school district. For more information on the programs and services offered by Butler County ESC, please visit them at bcesc.org. So thanks for that. And we're going to go ahead and get back with our conversation here. I'm really pleased to be uh, joined here by the author of Corporatizing Rural Education, Mr. Jason Cervone. And we were just talking about, um, you know, the privatization of public schools and also just talking about venture philanthropy and how it relates specifically to rural schools. But now I want to just talk a little bit about, I think all of us could, you know, we think we know so much as grownups, but let's just talk about Jason the purpose of education, and maybe that's the great place to start. We can come back to the center and find some grounding here. So I think that a lot of our policies and what like reform efforts, what we're really trying to, we don't really get into, okay, what, what are we really trying to create with our education system? We're more trying, okay, are we, do we just want to get kids to college? Are we just trying to get kids a job? And we think we need to take this broader view of things. So, um, I think the book, what I pretty well, I go well into, you know, the, the, what I think the outcome of this, you know, corporate private education system is. And, um, but I don't think I got enough into, and I'm, I'm vague with it on purpose because it's, you know, we're talking about a system that doesn't exist yet. Um, mm -hmm. The idea of what are, what kind of society are we trying to create with education? So I believe that the way it's going now, it's really it seems as if it's a way to kind of, create workers in as efficient a way as possible. And when it comes to, um, and that, that's a, it's a failure of the public education system too. I like when I um, talk about private education as being an issue, I'm not saying, well, everything should be fine the way it was. Like we need a real change in the public sector. Um, so I think far too often in terms of kids at rural schools, like I've heard people say all the time, you know, um, these kids aren't going to college or, they're nice like oh well they don't need to go to college mm. and I think that says a lot about you know the state of higher education right now which is um too many schools are just trying to to sell a credential to students instead of actually you know creating a, a strong education system in light in light of our recent scandals <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh, you know with 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 parents with the excessive means buying their way into it um just for the sake of saying that they went to that school so I hear what you're saying and that, that hurts those kids as well because they're mm -hmm. not, you know, they're going to the school, but they're not getting the education. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I think what I really want to get into one of the big topics is this kind of idea, well, you either when you finish high school, you get a job or you go to college. And I think that just kind of assumes that um, education is for, well, either you have, there's a job that doesn't need a college degree or a job that does need a college degree. Mm -hmm. and neither one actually provides, you know, learning while you're there. And so obviously we're in a side, you have to work. Um, and I'm not against that being a part of the education process, especially if a student has an interest in a particular career, then they should be allowed to explore that. Um, but when we're substituting job training for education, we're really boxing kids into, you know, a specific path when they're 13, 14 years old. And you know, more importantly, 
Um, a lot of times when you hear people talk about the need for career education, they're not actually offering a job at the end of that education. So I think if you're going to, you know, focus kids on a career pathway, then there should be something at the end for them. Um, you so know, and I'm curious, how does this, you know, how does this reflect for rural students when, um, you know, for a student who has not been out of a rural setting, you know, what are they teaching? And I'm, I'm just curious because I don't know the answer to this question. What are they, you know, what careers are they teaching towards um, that are beyond the scope of the, a rural setting? Can you answer that? Um, you, do you mean specifically the kind of career programs that are in rural schools? Yeah, I mean, so to your point, if, the, if, if right now we've got it, you know, we, we need to reset here. If, if what we're doing is, if the goal is to teach, you know, to, to provide a child with an education to go towards school or towards a job in a rural setting where um, they might not have the exposure to all sorts of different opportunities in life. Um, so I wonder, you know, how that limits a, a, a student in a rural um, school setting, whether it's a charter school or a public school, how that might be limiting um, for them to see themselves in the future. So I think oftentimes with uh, a lot, a lot of times it comes back to the venture philanthropy. It's like who's funding the program and okay. they will focus you that way. Um, rural schools, there's obviously a lot towards, you know, agriculture or whatever the, the dominant economic uh, group is there, which um, is actually, I think, through, I've seen farm schools that have done amazing things with students, um, but we have to look at, are you trying to create a worker for your company, or are you trying to um, to use agriculture as the example, like, to determine, like, what is the role of agriculture in American society? Like, what is your role, you know, as a farmer, as whatever you're doing? And how do you see yourself participating in society that way? And I think that is really the focus. Right. You, not to, to get the job to be a worker, but to understand what your place in society is and what you can do to improve it. And I think that with rural schools, kind of the, the charge that gets put on them is they're really too small to provide a proper education in an efficient manager, manner. Um, again, this is based on the economic thinking that you know, a larger school will have a larger staff, more resources, and can provide more options for a student. And while, and, you know, it's nice to have more electives, and, um, but just that and like a school that can provide every AP course as opposed to maybe one that can't provide any, doesn't mean the kids are actually learning better. Um, so what I would think is that school really needs to be simplified and that when it comes to offering education that would be, that would benefit you know, students in society, rural schools really have an advantage here. I mean, because if the purpose is um, that I'm trying to say is that providing students, you know, understanding the world, their place in the world, um, and how to participate in society, a uh, rural school gives you the chance, you know, you have a small group of students, small group of teachers who really get to know each other and get to know their community and can really, you know, critically engage with the community to to understand, you know, again, their place, but also, like, what is influencing them? What, what are the outside forces that are controlling their community? And what can they do to, to really take control and guide it the way that they want? Interesting. I mean, that's, I, I see that in my work with rural hospitals, just the close, everyone says we're a close knit community, we watch out for each other, everybody knows everybody. And so yes, I can certainly see why that would um, uh, present an advantage 
for those students. You know, we, you talk a little bit about um, the, the rural future, and right now it's interesting because I'm sure you do in your line of work when you see a headline that talks about rural, it probably piques your interest as it does mine. And you know, it's a mixed bag, right? We have a lot of negative uh, overtures about rural, um, something that came out last week, I think, in the New York Times. And then we've got, you know, I'm really focused on the power of rural and all the things that um, rural revitalization can offer. And so I wonder what your take is on r the rural future when it comes to, specifically when it comes to education, primary education uh, through high school. What do you think that looks like? Well, I don't know what it looks like, and hmm. I think, I mean, it's, you always want to have answers, but I think that the, for schools to work, that you really want them to be fully integrated in the community, and I see, like, kind of my role is not to sit back and say, I know best, and this is what communities should do, but to put schools in place that give students the education to, to determine that for themselves, because um, we're really talking about and the, and the future of rural is it's not going to look like the past. I don't believe it will be the simple, like, you know, producing, not producing like agriculture, farming. Um, it's going to be something different. And I don't know what that is, but we have to give students the chance to, to really, you know, engage with that, to understand like, what do they want? It kind of going along with, you know, why is it tough to attract teachers to rural areas? Well, there's plenty of us that, are attracted to rural areas. So what is stopping the people who want to be rural from getting into education? And I think that is, you know, the challenge for the future. Yeah, that is so interesting. I love that quote. I'm going to restate the future of rural will not look like the past. And I could not agree with you more. We're seeing that happen now. And I love the idea that let, let us provide um, an environment where young people can shape their future um, instead of, you know, putting all this negativity over them saying, you know, rural is dying and, you know, um, the whole, the whole thing of, you know, need to get out of this town. There are so many young people I talk to who love their communities. And to be honest with you, a lot of what I hear is that they, they pick up the despair of the elders, um, and kind of, since things don't look like the past, it seems kind of like doom and, and despair. And I, I just love that concept that young people actually can have the power to shape their future if we uh, have the courage to allow them to do that. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And um, yeah, because the kids do pick it up. Like when you tell them from the beginning, like, oh, if you want to make something of yourself, you know, you have to, you have to go, you have to get out of this town, go to college and learn something then. Right. And what's the point of coming back? Right, exactly. What do you see the, um, the biggest challenge, you know, for in, in all the research that you've done and the work that you put into this, to this book and to this topic, what do you believe are, um, if I could ask you, the biggest opportunities and at the same time some of the more significant roadblocks? What will need to happen for us to remove those roadblocks and move towards these broader uh, opportunities? I think it will take a lot more civic engagement. I mean, if you, I'm just looking at public schools really have, I mean, school boards can be a mixed blessing, but the fact that there is a democratically elected community-based group in charge of the school is a great thing. But if you, I mean, obviously you just look at, you know, voting turnout in general, like it's even less for something small like school board. Mm. So it's really finding a way to, like, I think schools should really serve as, you know, the center of the community. And how do you 
get everyone involved and seeing that, you know, this is the path to, to creating the future. And like, how can we get involved in you know, making rural communities better for the young people who are living there? Mm-hmm. And especially, you know, for, for those who, of course, we know in, in, uh, in general, in rural communities, the population skews older. And so if you don't have school-aged children, you know, you, you check out. And that happens in many communities. You know, you pay your taxes begrudgingly and it goes to the schools. But I understand your point completely. Uh, we have to find some ways to engage our um, elders in the community, the business owners, the faith-based organizations to see their schools as the shiny, you know, like that shining example of possibilities versus to your earlier point, just get them in, get them through and hope. <laughs> and education is not just for kids too. Like this, I, I think in the future schools should be like, nobody should stop learning. And how do schools welcome all adults, all their generations into? Hmm. And so now knowing that civic engagement is a major, we have to really work on that, then we, we have more civic engagement. What are the possibilities that you foresee if we can kind of get out of our own heads and get beyond? And of course, the economic piece of this is significant. We didn't really touch on that. I, one of the things that you talked about was that, you know, the, much of the rural decline is due to purely economic thinking and schools cannot run efficiently um, with that with that mindset, correct? Um, yeah, I don't see the way that they could. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so the opportunities before us when we have civic engagement, what are those? What, what's some of the, the light at the end of the tunnel you see if we can get out of our own way here? Well, I think um, one of the things that really holds back small schools is, you know, being reliant on the local tax base. And there is more than enough money in this country to fund education properly. Um, so I think through this, like, I don't know if it's, I'm maybe being negative. It might be too late for, you know, us in the older generations, but I just fostering this desire to take part in, you know, take part civically in society in students might be helpful for the future. And to really growing this idea that and seeing education as, you know, a right as, as someone living in here and not something that, well, we have to find a way to pay for. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that completely. And one of the things I'd like to ask guests is, you know, um, for for so many people who are not touched by rural, who've never lived in a rural community, maybe only in their lifetime drove through a rural community, why should rural matter to everyone, um, whether or not you're living in an urban setting or in a rural community? What do you think? What do you think about that question? Uh, Well, I mean, it's just an idea of you know, we're, we're all a part of this country. We have to look out for each other. But I mean, just know, like, I mean, where does your food come from? Just understanding how rural, urban, suburban all work together and seeing how we are all connected. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree completely. I take a look at what's happening in Nebraska right now with the flooding and people, you know, the fires in California with all the farms and really recognizing that we need each other. Now, last question I have for you. Can public schools and charter schools coexist efficiently in a rural setting? What do you think about that? Um, yes. I mean, um, when I, obviously when I talk about charter schools, um, specifically I'm referring to, you know, the privately run ones that are, that are taking money from, you know, public education. But uh, charter school, the, uh, the idea of charter schools 
at its beginning was a way to aid in public education because we know that not every student learns the same, not every student needs to be in the same environment. So the charter was a way to you know, kind of do different things, try out new things, and, that, and use that as a way to, to help you know, the traditional public school. And I know um, Karen Epley at Penn State has written a little about um, like when, when your rural school shuts down for consolidation, can charter be the answer to get that community-run and governed school? So I do think that there is a place for it, um, provided that it is working with the public sector and not in competition with it, taking resources away from other students. And I think your point earlier about really going back to understanding what education is for, that seems to me to be a key point here, whether it's public or private, if we are all on the same page with respect to that one very significant and important point, um, it seems to me that we'll be ahead of the game. Yeah, we should have as many schools as possible. Really. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jason, I so have enjoyed this conversation. I had an opportunity to read several. I wasn't able to read the whole book, but I read several chapters, and I just think it's fascinating conversation. Um, again, we've been joined by Jason Cervone. He is the author of Corporatizing Rural Education. Um, I encourage you to go on Amazon or wherever you'd like to buy your books. If you're interested in rural um, education or education in general, I, I think it's a, a great, um, insightful read with a lot of pretty heavy concepts. And um, It's pretty academic at times. <laughs> it's pretty academic, but I'll tell you, it's, again, very interesting, and I appreciated learning about it, um, all the different perspectives. So thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we'd like to acknowledge and thank our Rural Matters marketing partners always, which includes the Center for Rural Affairs, Community Hospital Corporation, Foundation for Rural Service, the Journal of Research in Rural Education, Learning Blade, NCTA, the Rural Broadband Association, the National Rural Education Association, the National Rural Health Association, and Ohio Small and Rural Collaborative. Now, these partnering organizations help Rural Matters to be an even more powerful forum for the discussions like the one we had today and all the issues affecting our rural communities across this country. If you would like more information on these rural issues or to suggest a guest or a topic, please just email us at ruralmatterspodcast at gmail. And of course, as I said earlier, we do appreciate if you rate this podcast on iTunes and please do tell your friends and colleagues about us. Rural Matters is produced by Michael Levin Epstein and Susan Simples. And again, you can follow us on Twitter at Rural Matters Pod or me at MRB Impact. Thank you again for listening and we'll talk to you next time on Rural Matters. Rural Matters.